Well, uh, we are picking up where we left off last week, in a sense. Um, last week we introduced uh, the book of 1 Timothy. The book, the book of 1 Timothy, we kind of discussed last week the reasons for why we're going to pick up a study on the book of 1 Timothy. Um, the reason we're doing this is because we've been going through the doctrine of systematic theology and we've come across the doctrine of the church. And because of what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy, of the reason why he wrote this book in the first place, it was to tell Timothy how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. And so the very purpose of the letter of 1 Timothy fits perfectly with the systematic subject what we've been studying, and that is the doctrine of the church. And so we're going to give ourselves to a, uh, a survey of, of sorts of the book of 1 Timothy, and really in hopes of addressing all of the, the issues that come up in a systematic study of the doctrine of the church. So that's our aim. That's what we're setting out to do. Last week, we actually um, looked at the first three verses in the book of First Timothy, which isn't making a lot of progress as far as the book's concerned, but uh, we really kind of just set some of the foundational issues. We've seen that it's the Apostle Paul writing this letter, we see that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to his, as he refers to Timothy, as his child in the faith. And we also noted that this book is being written primarily to address problems in the church at Ephesus. Timothy has been put in the church at Ephesus to address um, heresy, false teaching, aberrant teaching in the church at Ephesus. And that's why Paul actually sets out to address this letter to him. So... Very serious issues going on in this church. False teaching, false doctrine is, is cropping up in this church. And we turn last week, and I want you to turn again. Please turn again back to Acts chapter 20. Because in Acts chapter 20, we turn there last week, because here we see that this false teaching, this heresy that, that crops up in this church at Ephesus, um, did not surprise the Apostle Paul. It did not catch him unawares because, as we noted in verse 29 of chapter 20, the Apostle Paul had actually prophesied um, more than 10 years earlier that this, that this problem would arise in this very church in Ephesus, that false teachers, false doctrine would arise in this church. And the Apostle Paul had actually prophesied um, that reality. But... I had you turn to Acts chapter 20 last week, not to just point out uh, what I think is that interesting fact, but in Acts chapter 20, we're also given some, some helpful background information into this church that Timothy has been made a, an overseer in. We get background information here about this church in Ephesus, because in Acts chapter 20, as the Apostle Paul is speaking to the elders in the church at Ephesus, um, he makes some, some very interesting and very relevant ecclesiastical statements, meaning statements concerning the church, statements concerning the um, doctrine of the church, church government, church polity as it's called, um, church structure as maybe you'll hear me refer to it. But in Acts chapter 20, um, it's really become like a classical text on pointing out some issues related to church government. And so we're going to actually spend some time in Acts chapter 20 today and, and just note 
um, the ways in which this church in Ephesus was governed and was structured by the Apostle Paul. And we're also going to note that the way this church is structured is actually the, the church structure for all of the New Testament churches in general. So let me ask this question because um, just to get you guys thinking in the right direction, why is a study of church government or church structure or church polity, why is this helpful? Why is this relevant? Why is this important? Um, because as I thought, as you're studying through a systematic theology book, I could imagine that many Bible students, probably many uh, seminary students, I can see them being very tempted to just skip through, to skim through this chapter, right, and, and maybe get back to eschatology or whatever's at the end of a systematic theology book. Um, but I think the study of ecclesiology, the study of the church, um, church government maybe in particular, just really doesn't seem utterly compelling to many people or as interesting maybe as the, the doctrine of um, uh, the doctrine of Christ or the doctrine of salvation or these types of things. But why? Why do we want to be sure not to skip over um, a study of church government? Why is that important? Any, any thoughts on that? Why, why we may want to make sure that we spend time with this? Yes, Juan. Uh, for me personally, uh, I mean, it's, it's the bride of Christ. You know, it's Christ, Jesus Christ is coming back for it. And uh, I know early on there was a lot of uh, heretical ideas that I came across and a lot of legalistic things I had to work through mm. and just really being exposed to, you know, really what the Bible has to say about how a church should be structured, you know, it, was, it helped me to discern what to give, you know, attention to and what to kind of stay away from mm -hmm. over, over time. It's beneficial, I think, for myself and everybody else as, as you grow and as you walk with the Lord. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yes, sir. It, uh, it creates a sense of accountability for those who would be in responsible positions to tend to the flock mm -hmm. that everybody can be aware of so that there are certain criteria and standards they must adhere to. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Definitely. Yeah, we'll probably spend, you know, we'll get to First Timothy chapter 3 um, in particular, which is written specifically for that. We're definitely going to get there. Um, definitely the Word of God is holding those in leadership um, to a standard. There's standards set out for the church. That's right. Um, I just thought in general, and I kind of mentioned this last week, but um, the church is, and maybe this is kind of going along the lines with what, where Juan was going maybe, but the church is Jesus Christ. It's his church. We're his bride. He is the head of the church. And so as we study the doctrine of the, the church, um, really all we're doing is acknowledging what the head has determined he wants his church to be. We're just submitting to the way that the head says, this is the way I want my church to be run, and we're saying amen, and we're doing what God has revealed to us. Um, his desire is, we're, we're just submitting to his prescription for how he wants his bride to operate and to work, you see. Um, maybe on a more practical explanation, I just thought of the reality that um, church government or, or any organization for any group, any... The, the foundation of any group is its organization. See, whether it's the church, whether it's in the home, 
whether it's a secular business, if it's not organized rightly, if, if everybody in that organization doesn't understand their roles, right, like what Joseph was getting to, if you don't know your roles and, and not everybody's on the same page as to what you're to be held accountable to do, you're really starting off with um, a recipe for disorganization, for feuds, for, you know what I mean, just problems if organization really isn't foundational. So I think in all that, you know, at the end of the day, you could just say, well, the Bible says we're supposed to do this, and that's enough. That's true, right? So in that, uh, we see that Jesus Christ is telling us how he wants his uh, church to be organized. And in that sense, these very practical matters, these practical studies in systematic theology aren't just mere formalism. This is given to us so that people who, who love the Lord Jesus Christ can know what they are to do in order to honor their Lord and to honor the head of the church. So that's really why we're, why we're setting out on this study, and that's why God has revealed these things to us, so that we can honor him as he desires to be honored. That's it. That's it. So I had you turn to Acts chapter 20. I think, um, I think you guys are there. So what's the first thing we see in Acts chapter 20 here? I'm actually going to pick up in verse 17. But what we're going to notice here, first off, is the reality that the head of the church, that Jesus Christ desires that his church is led by a plurality of elders. A plurality of elders, see? Notice verse 17. It says, From Miletus, he, that's speaking of the Apostle Paul, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So historically what's happening here is the Apostle Paul, as I said last week, he had served three years in the church at Ephesus. He was amongst these people for three years. He set up this church and he had left the church and he was coming near to this church um, years after he had ministered there. And he didn't want to actually go to Ephesus. He was on his way to Jerusalem. I think verse 16 tells us he wants to make it to Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost so he doesn't have time to stop in Ephesus. He stops at a port city uh, called Miletus, and he, and he sends to Ephesus. He says, I can't stop. I have to make it to Jerusalem. Send the elders to me. Send the elders to me from the church in Ephesus, and I'm, I need to talk to them before I never see them again. The Apostle Paul didn't think he was ever going to see their faces again. So really what's so significant about Acts chapter 20 is this is the Apostle Paul's last words, his dying words in a sense, to this church, this church that he loved maybe more than any other church. He spent the most time with them. And so it's actually a very personal section uh, of the Apostle Paul's writing here. But for the sake of our topic, it says in verse 17 that Paul called to Ephesus, he called to him the elders, plural, of the church, singular. So that's the first point, that there's one church that he's referring to, and he's calling to himself the, the elders, plural. See, so um, one thing you have to determine as you read through the book of Acts, or maybe the Gospels in particular, or any of the books of the Bible, actually, but one thing you have to determine as you study the Bible is what things are being given in the Bible uh, purely descriptively versus what's being given prescriptively. Uh, does anybody understand, uh, can anybody explain the the distinction I'm making there that as you read through the book of Acts and, and Paul or Luke, 
I guess, here is telling us what occurred in the first century church. As you read this, you must determine what in that text is descriptive versus prescriptive. Who can explain for us the distinction I'm making there? Wally. I think the descriptive is just telling what, what is and the prescriptive is what should be. Yes, that's right. So when we refer to um, the book of Acts as giving descriptive information, in that sense we're saying, well, there's things that occurred in the first century church that the book of Acts tells us about that is just telling us what happened there, but it's not written prescriptively, meaning that it's not written in that it's telling us what must be done or what must continue. An example of that maybe be like Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. <laughs> is that what you guys were thinking about? I mean, that's, that's a good classical uh, example there, is we don't expect, because the book of Acts described that Pentecost happened in Acts chapter 2, it's in no way prescribing that Pentecost should occur every Sunday at your church. See, it's just descriptive of an event that actually occurred, but it's not prescriptive. You see, what's, and so how that example might be relevant to what we're looking at today is just because Acts chapter 20 says that there was a plurality of elders in this church uh, doesn't necessarily mean that that's prescriptive for all churches until we read through the entire book of Acts and the New Testament epistles and see that every single church was set up this way, and therefore we, we know by the weight of that evidence that this certainly is prescriptive. You see, because plurality of elders is not a new concept, it's not a random concept in Acts chapter 20. Turn to Acts chapter 14 now. Turn to Acts chapter 14. This is how we know that plurality of eldership is not the exception, uh, but it is in fact being set forward to us as the model of church government and church structure. In Acts chapter 14, uh, let's read maybe beginning in verse 21. Acts chapter 21, uh, or 14, beginning in verse 21. This is the Apostle Paul's, Apostle Paul's traveling with Barnabas. It's his first missionary journey. Uh, this is where everything's getting started as far as church planting's concerned. The very first missionary journey that Paul sets off on. And notice what he does from the very beginning, beginning in verse 21. It says, After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. They were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Verse 23 is really what I want to focus on, where it says, When they had appointed elders, when they had appointed elders for them in every church. See, they prayed with fasting and they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So right here, again, we see that from the very outset of the Apostle Paul's church planting missionary journeys, he's appointing in each church elders, plural. See? See how that is from, from the very outset? Now, another reason I say that this is by no means just another exception is for the sake of all of these verses that I wrote right here. Um, I wrote up all of the verses that, that, and there's more, but these are pretty clear, these are pretty explicit texts, and we're not going to spend the time to look at them all. But if you wanted to write them down just to have the textual evidence for uh, 
the, re- the reality of, of the requirement of having a plurality of eldership in the church, this pretty much uh, sums it up for you. This pretty is a pretty definitive list. And the thing is, is that there's no exceptions, as I said, to this rule. In every New Testament example, there's a plurality of eldership in every church. There's no exceptions, not even for small churches, you know, that are set up. I'm sure many of these churches, I, I guarantee all these churches that the Apostle Paul planted in his first missionary journey were in probably small in that sense. And he set up elders, plural, in every church. Now, because there's no exceptions to the rule, and because every example uh, that's, that's mentioned in Scripture, all these examples, give you a plurality of eldership, uh, in my mind, that should really settle the debate. right? I don't know what there else is there to talk about. There is no other model for church government given. Um, and, and maybe you're not even familiar with the fact that there is a debate about church government or that there's other options for plurality of eldership. But I know given myself and being raised in a, in a Southern Baptist um, background, coming from that background, I didn't know anything of a plurality of eldership. I knew of one, the one pastor model as, as it's been known, or the Moses model is as some denominations could even refer to it. And, and all that's kind of kind of interesting to me in that out of all the things, you know, there's not so many things in Scripture that are taught repeatedly with no exceptions, but yet you still have people not, um, you know, accepting that as being a biblical teaching, which is strange to me. So obviously... Um, I'm sure there's ignorance on the issue. I know there's ignorance on the issue. People just haven't been exposed to the, the reality, maybe. But and, and so for those who are in ignorance, I mean, I'm not speaking about them. But there could be no other reason to not model your church after the apostolic model other than, than putting tradition over the Bible or just being pragmatic in, in believing that, um, you know, as they say, it just works better. <coughs> It just works better to have a single pastor model, right? I mean, that's... Yes, sir? You know, I would just add something to that. Yeah, go ahead. Chris. Um, because I agree with you as far as the plurality, obviously. You know. mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I would say maybe the, the only other exception, which I don't know if you were going to get to that, so I hope I'm not stealing your thunder or anything, but uh, would be maybe in the context of missions, missions. where... Um, <clears throat> The church is transitioning, or it's purifying, right? Um, because I know so many pastors on the mission field that just don't have the capacity to do plurality yet. But that's right. what they're aiming for. Like you know, missionary we support Joseph Urban for a very long time. He was a single elder until they brought Aaron along, and then now there's another elder out there working with them. But um, so it could be in a stage of purification. I mean, Good point. Observation. Yeah, good point. Yeah, definitely, definitely agree. Like if Emilio died today, right, my fingers are crossed behind my back. If Emilio died today, I'm just joking. If I died today, if I died today, that would not necessitate us to just raise somebody up for the sake of biblical, you know, plurality of eldership, right? Um, But yeah, so a church, you know, Maybe there is only one qualified man in that church. That doesn't mean you raise up an unqualified man to fill that role just to try to fulfill that scripture. As long as you're 
you know, the church is moving in that direction, I think, you know, that's, of course, Scott, Jeff. Well, you answered it. I mean, basically, so if you were talking to someone in their church doesn't but has the heart to do that and just has, doesn't have the second qualified elder, that would be, you know, an okay exception as long as they were working towards yes. qualifying the second elder. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I, yeah, I appreciate that qualification. That's, that's definitely right. I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen that. You know, I mean, normally I just see the single pastor model and they argue for it. Right. You know, which I'm saying is like, what... And Grudem, I think Grudem's section in systematic theology was excellent on this whole church government section. He does a very good job at laying out the arguments for the single pastor model and, and defends the plurality of eldership model very clearly, very straightforwardly. Um, he's referencing, I don't know how many of you guys have Strong's. Is he A.H. Strong? He has a systematic theology. He's a in, in Old Baptist, and he actually argues for the single pastor model in there, and I think Grudem uh, refutes him quite uh, straightforwardly and convincingly. I, I, very interesting. Yes, sir? I think, um, coming from a fundamentalist background, um, I saw a church split who had plurality of elders mm. in the sense of there were two guys who called themselves pastor. Mm. It wasn't, I don't think it was as pure as you know, the reformed stand that we have here. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's actually, that fueled the single pastor mentality in the fundamentalist movement that I wasn't part of. Because um, it was like, oh, well, it was a bad thing. This guy, you know, you know, stole some of the members from this other pastor and things like that. It, it got really nasty. But uh, yeah. it, it goes back to, the, like, like you said, the pragmatic, you know, argument. Well, it doesn't work. <laughs> you know? That's what I was thinking. Yeah, so, and, and you can see why they would reason that way, but you never, you know, reason from your experience and say, well, the Bible must not be, you know, the biblical model must not be right because it just doesn't work for us. So, right. yeah, we want to we be weary of that. Um, before we get into, I guess, this further, maybe I just wanted to open it up this way as well. What are some benefits that you see in, that maybe lie behind in the wisdom of God behind having... Uh, plurality of eldership, like Jonathan mentioned, one reason that, well, maybe it might cause a problem in one sense. You've seen it work out as a problem, but what would be the benefits uh, behind that? Yes, sir. Accountability. Yep. Um, you know, if, yeah, again, I, I go back to you know, my fundamentalist roots. There were, there were pastors who became disqualified but did not leave mm -hmm. because there was no elder to hold them accountable saying, hey, no, you need to go. Right. And you know, just on that level, yeah. You know, accountability is a big one for me. Yeah, I think that is part you know, of the exchange it. between Peter and Paul. Do we give a really good example of two people who are both titled apostle and one of them needing correction? Yeah, it's a good example. Yeah, yes, sir. Um, maybe if um, someone is needing counsel, you know, one is busy. If there's another one who's able to reach out, right? Just get more done. Cover more ground in one sense, sure. Yeah. I just thought of the reality that um, different elders have different gifts, yeah. right? And can, and can function in different ways and can, you know, take care of the church in, in, different, in different ways. Definitely see your church would be very limited if you just had one pastor and you could only do, you know, one thing, you know. That, that in a sense, could, could, uh, could limit... Uh, how about, I, I just thought about this from a, from a biblical theology perspective in, in this sense, that plurality of elders, plurality of leadership and eldership is, 
is actually nothing new to the assemblies of God's people. Turn to Exodus chapter 18, and this might answer just another reason to why um, God desires a plurality of elders in the church. Because we see a plurality of eldership as far back as the, as the church in the wilderness, as Stephen refers to it in Acts chapter 7. Exodus chapter 18, beginning in verse 17. Many of you may be familiar with uh, Jethro's advice, right? Jethro's advice to Moses. Jethro sees uh, the problem with the single Moses model uh, leadership. <laughs> Jethro recognizes it. This is what he says, beginning in verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing, that you are not do- the thing you are doing is not good, because you will surely wear out, both yourself and these people who are with you. For the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you counsel, and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God, and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and laws, and make known to them the way in which they are to walk, and the work in which they are to do. And verse 21 says, Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. So I just read that example to show that this is no new teaching, in a sense. As you read through the Old Testament, uh, all the cities of Israel had elders, leading men, right? And I don't think there it's generally, it's not using the, the word elder in the same sense that the New Covenant Church is using the word elder as an official uh, office of the church, but you, you certainly had this sort of organization being carried out from the very beginning. A plurality of leadership is, is nothing new. Um, any questions? Did anybody have any questions about any of these texts maybe? That you, if y'all looked them up? Yes, sir. Yeah, just one question uh, in the Moses quote Moses model kind of brings this to the front a little bit is uh, I think how Strouch puts it uh, the first among equals or the teaching pastor where does that fit in the context of that plurality right well you might be able to get that from the Moses model because like the language that he used there he said um, like in verse 19 you be the people's representative before God right like almost setting him apart and then you have all these other guys who are going to be the leaders you might be able to get um, the, the first among many model from, from that passage, but I don't think we see that in the New Covenant examples, as we'll see. Um, we will get into the distinctive but of the preaching, teaching elder. I do think there is that distinctive, but I don't know that he's elevated, in a sense, as far as authority is concerned, like maybe Moses would have been in this model, right? So, but there is definitely a distinctive that we'll get to because I think that there actually is a preaching slash teaching elder amongst elders. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely look at that. I mean, we have that here. So, yeah, we definitely see that in Scripture. Anything else before we move on? Because what I want to look at now, I want to look at some of the biblical names or biblical descriptions for this same office of elder. Because the Bible doesn't always refer to them as elders. And I think if you don't have that understanding in mind, it could get confusing as to what is the Bible referring to as it uses some of these different words. 
So if you turn back to the book of Acts chapter 20, I told you we were going to be there, but let's go back there. Because we read Acts chapter 20, verse 17 already. Remember, that's where it said that Paul called to himself the elders of the church. Um, the elders of the church. The, the, the presbytery, the presbyteros, right, for Landon. Because I see him looking at his Greek Bible. Um, he's, he's calling to himself the elders of the church. That's, that's the men that he's calling to himself, the elders. That's the language we use, right, quite frequently when we speak of, of the leadership here. But notice, as he's called these elders to himself, notice now, um, down in verse 28 now, notice these new designations that he uses to refer to the same group of men. In verse 28, he gives a couple different designations to these same men, these elders. In verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. See? There's the first one. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to do what? To shepherd or to pastor, as we say. To pastor the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Now, that's why I wanted us to turn to Acts chapter 20, because this is kind of the classic passage on, on just uh, displaying to us the reality of these different designations given to the same office of elder. Here in the same chapter, we have them being referred to elders, to overseers, and in a sense as pastors, even though it's the verb form being used, he says, you know, to shepherd, to pastor, but we'll see that that word gets used as a noun, uh, poimain, to refer to pastors. Uh, another classic example to kind of prove the point that the Bible is using all three of these words. Because it uses different words at different times. Sometimes it says overseer. Sometimes it says pastor. Sometimes it says elders. But what, but what I want you to understand from that is that it's always referring to the same people, to the same office. It's not referring to, dis, to distinct offices or different offices. What's another way to prove that point? Well, if you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, which, which you all know is that classic passage that the... the, the the most famous passage on the requirements for an elder, or as we see here in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he actually uses the word overseer here um, versus the word elder. Right? In verse 3 it says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. Now, we always refer to this, right, as the requirements for a pastor. But what we mean is the requirements for an elder or the requirements for an overseer because it's all the same office um, used with different words. So how do we know that Paul is using the word overseer here in the way that we think of it, as in a pastor or elder? Well, if you turn to the parallel passage in the book of Titus, where there in Titus, Paul's giving the exact same well, I say exact same. He's giving a parallel uh, list of requirements for elders where here in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, for instance, instead of using the word overseer, now he uses the word elder, speaking of the exact same requirements for the exact same group of men, uh, the men that we refer to as pastors or elders. Look at Titus chapter 1, verse 5, where there it says, For this reason I left you in Crete, 
that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And then he goes on to list all of the requirements um, for the pastor or for the elder that you see in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So I'm just pointing this out to show you that the Bible is using different uh, words, different descriptors of the same office, which, which you need to understand. It, it actually can become relevant um, at times for different reasons. Also, if you're there in Titus, notice, notice how he switches again in verse 7. Because in verse 7, he, he then says, For the overseer must be above reproach. So see how they're just using these words interchangeably, speaking of the same, same office. Uh, another thing I wanted to point out about these words is the words themselves are important because the words themselves, these titles given to this office, are, are very descriptive in and of themselves of the task or the job that this elder is to perform. You see, as you think about these words, well, if you think about the word elder, what, what does that description bring to mind? Well, to me, it just I think of older men, right? Which I think is very appropriate. And then I think, yeah, most commonly, it probably would have been the older men who would have been the elders. They would have been the most spiritually mature. They probably would have been the longest in the faith. You see, they would have very naturally been the leaders, although... I think as the, as the office, as that title is being used of the office, it doesn't necessitate a certain age. Uh, we see Timothy himself being an exception to that rule in a sense, is that he apparently was young comparatively to even the elders in the church at Ephesus, and he still was able to bear an authority with them and even over them as he was an apostolic representative. But I think that title elder should, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's signifying if not in, in age maturity, for sure a spiritual maturity. And, and that's what, is what the word elder signifies. What about the word overseer? Well, it's interesting, as you look up the word episkopos in BDAG, which is just a, a well-known, reputable, very reputable Greek lexicon, listen to how, the, how they define the word overseer. It says, they define the word episkopos as overseer or supervisor. Interesting supervisor. Interesting word, but listen to what he says. They are specifically to be overseeing and supervising. This is what BDAC says. They are to be an overseer or a supervisor with special interest in guarding the apostolic tradition. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that a good way to think about the pastor's job or the overseer's job? He's to be making sure the church is in accordance with the apostolic tradition and not veering away in any way from biblical church. So you see that in the title. The title is an overseer. That's what they're to be doing. They're to be making sure everything is staying biblical and staying on the straight and narrow according to Scripture. What about that third word that's often used to describe the pastor? The pastor. That word is, is just the word to shepherd. So what do you think about as you think about that word being used in, in a connotation for the office of an elder? What may be, why does God use that word, shepherd? What's, what type, what is that supposed to communicate to us as far as the function of the man in that office? What is he to be doing? To green pastures. Leading, leading them to green pastures, right? Leading them in the right direction. Yes, sir. I'm just leading, them. leading them. Leading them in the right way. 
Yeah, that's right. Yes, sir. You and Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The true shepherd lays down his life for his flock. Wow, a sacrificial ministry. Right? The shepherd would be willing to fight off, you know, wolves, sacrifice his life if necessary. I was going to say protect. Protect them. From, like, from the yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's what I said. Direct them. Care for them. Protect them. All of the functions that a shepherd did is, is why the Bible um, gives that designation to this office. I think just what's interesting to me about that designation is that it's used the least biblically. Right? Like it's always overseer or elder. The least used is pastor, but that for us that's the most common. I don't know why I just treat it. I mean, but it is a legitimate, it is the title given. And, and normally it, the word is used, uh, poimeno, which is the verb. It's just describing what we do. You're to shepherd the, the, the flock of God among you. It's always talking about the verb, the action. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to shepherd the church. Where's the one place that, that the New Testament actually uses the noun? and refers to elders as pastors. Because there's only one place where it actually calls elders pastors. Ephesians, Ephesians right? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Right? It says to the church he gave what? <coughs> Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers, which I think are grouped together speaking of the same office. But that is, that's right. That's, that's the only place that the Bible actually calls them pastors, but we use that most common designation, which I just always thought was interesting. Um, let's turn to one more passage. One more passage. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, where here we see that designation given to pastor the church. And then again, we see the language being used interchangeably with the, the language of eldership. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, this is Peter writing, Therefore, I exhort the elders, right? Elders, plural. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Now, here it is in verse 2. What's almost the verb form of what they're supposed to be doing? He says, to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, right? There's the other, I mean... You just see these all being used inter interchangeably, not under, under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Now, I wanted to get down to verse 4, because verse 4 says, And when the chief shepherd, uh, chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so even though it doesn't explicitly refer to, or to elders as pastors, I think implicitly that's what it's saying. If there's a chief shepherd who's Jesus Christ, the, 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 the pastor of all of the church, we refer to them as under-shepherds because pastors are underneath the lordship or underneath the, 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 the pastorate of Jesus Christ. And that's how, that's how we execute our ministry. Now... Because I have like two minutes, uh, let's turn lastly to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Because as I told, is it Chad? Chad, right? Yeah. As I told Chad, there is one more distinction even amongst this group of elders, right? I'm saying there's this, this group of leadership called elders, they're called overseers, they're called pastors, 
But it's interesting that even amongst this group, there actually is a biblical distinction amongst them. And you see it here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Because in verse 17 it says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. See, isn't that interesting that uh, Paul here sets apart uh, a distinct group of elders within the bigger group of elders. And what, what is the distinctive about them? Yeah, that they give themselves especially, right, especially to the work of preaching and teaching, he says. So it's good and it's right to have, even amongst elders, some who we could refer to as the teaching elders or preaching elders, who especially devote themselves right, maybe full time to that ministry of study and preaching and teaching the word. And it's a biblical distinction. Nothing wrong with that. Some elders, even though all must be able to teach, right, some may not devote uh, their uh, time and their efforts simply to that. And for those who make it their full-time work of preaching and teaching, what is the, requ- the biblical requirement for the church? Double honor. Double honor. And what does double honor, what does that mean? What does it mean to give them double honor? More more free lunches. More free lunches. That could be part of it. That could be part of it. Double pay. Double pay, right? Or it's definitely referring to to money, right? How do we know it's referring to money? The next verse, right? Verse 18 makes it clear. For the scripture says... You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. You see, so I think that makes it pretty clear that this is referring to honoring, uh, is referring to financial remuneration for that work of, of, and it's a work. All eldership is a work, right? That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3. Anyone who desires the work of an overseer, he calls it, uh, no matter what you're doing in the church, it's a job. Right, so, but with this job in particular, because of uh, the the weight, I think, and the time specifically that it that it requires to prepare and to study and to show oneself approved in the sense that you need to be able to do to stand up before the church and preach the word, you're to pay that man for that work because it's a difficult, time-consuming, strenuous work. You see, so yeah, that's that's definitely a biblical distinction we make and, and see in scripture. And, and, and actually live out here at Heritage Grace. And so the reason we addressed all these issues is not only for the sake of systematic theology of the doctrine of the church, but as we will see, this is the church of Ephesus that we've been looking at in particular. This is the church that Timothy has now been given apostolic representation to oversee and to work with in Ephesus. And so that's going right along with what we're doing as we work our way through First Timothy, next week we'll get into the actual heresy that's popping up in the church of Ephesus and how the Apostle Paul addresses that. See, so let's pray real quick and then we'll go to service. Well, Father, again, Father, my, my thanks to you is for your revelation, God. We thank you that, as I said last week, that, that the church in and of itself doesn't have to make up its government and to to make up the way in which we're to function you lord have given us direction 
and we thank you for that. And we thank you for the grace of, of bringing this to, our, to light of how it is that you want your church structured, Lord. I know that even, even in the church of Ephesus, Lord, that even though their church government was correct, Lord, and, and biblical, that there was still problems and still error, Lord. So we still uh, need your grace, Lord. We still need your help in all of these things and caring for the church and shepherding the church, Lord. So help us, Lord. May we be a church. May Heritage Grace be a light, Lord, among the churches as we glorify you. Please receive our worship today, Lord. Receive and be honored by the partaking of the Lord's Supper. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.